As we get more responsibility, it becomes more challenging to hear the full truth from the people we lead. Many leaders struggle with getting insight into what others really want. This episode will help you explore and surface what matters so you can ultimately lead better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 565. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the things that are are so present in so many leaders' minds is, how do I understand and learn what people want? So many of us ask that, if not out loud, certainly inside of our own brains on a regular basis as we're leading our organizations. And yet, uh, even though we know how important it is to know what people want and what's important to them, the actual steps of doing it are sometimes a challenge for us. Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert that's going to help us to be able to walk through this, help us do it better, and provide us some practical insights to listen well. I'm so pleased to welcome Tiziana Cacharo to the show. She is a professor of organizational behavior at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Her research on interpersonal and organizational networks and power dynamics has received Distinguished Scientific Achievement Awards from the Academy of Management and has been covered in the New York Times, Washington Post, Financial Times, and many other outlets. She advises organizations and professionals across industries and has been recognized by Thinkers 50 as a management thinker most likely to shape the future of how organizations are managed and led. She is the author with Julie Patalana of Power for All, How It Really Works and Why It's Everyone's Business. Tiziana, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Dave, thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. This book is built around a word, which is power. And power is, of course, such an important uh, principle for us to be aware of as leaders, and especially when we think about what others want. And you write in the book with Julie that power, as we've defined it, is the ability to influence others' behavior, be it through persuasion or coercion. But what determines this ability? The answer is surprisingly simple. What enables one person to influence another is control over access to resources the other person values. It's it's one of these principles that when I talk to leaders who are struggling with making connections to their teams, there's there's this, I think, almost an inherent understanding that I need to know what's important to others and what others want. And yet, I'm curious a bit of the why behind that. When you look at the research, I mean, I sort of think we all know inherently that's important, but when you look at the research, what do leaders get by really getting clarity on what other people value? Well, I always like to tell my students and executives I, I speak with that you cannot lead people you don't understand. And the reason is that for leadership to work, uh, you have to motivate the folks that you're, you're trying to, to influence to pursue certain goals, to engage in certain work. And they're not going to want to put their energy and their best capabilities toward a goal that they don't find valuable. 
So uh, the understanding of what people want is, is really the core of that of that leadership process. And a good leader is very mindful of this. Uh, but you can be mindful and still not have enough of a guide uh, in the your motivations that animate us humans. We are complicated. <laughs> and our, our yeah. desires, the things that we want, the things that we need are multifaceted. They change over time. They change across people. And even for the same person, what they wish to pursue may shift depending on the phase of, of their lives, their careers. So, you know, it takes a really keen observation and interest, but it also takes a, a guide right through it. And that's what we try to do in our book. We try to provide a bit of a pathway. Uh, in this kind of complicated world of human motivation so that uh, the, the leader's job is facilitated. One complication you highlight in the book, and I, I highlighted this this phrase more than anything else or this sentence, because I've, I've seen this come up so many times that, and you write, even when you know to ask people what they need, they don't always tell you. And <laughs> I, I've seen that come up so many times where, where a leader, a manager will ask someone or they'll, they'll think they have an answer to the question or someone will say something, but it actually isn't always the full story or maybe even the story at all. And I, I, it strikes me that this is a real challenge for a lot of leaders. It certainly is. But there are things you can do to help yourself. And the first thing is understand that there are some basic things that people reliably want or need. And at least they give you the, the right direction in terms of what you're looking for. And once you establish those, then your job is to really delve into the, the peculiarities of a specific individual or group in the moment in time and understand how those basic valued resources apply. So let me, let me give an example, maybe to clarify what I mean. Please. If you look at all that has been written and studied about human motivations and human nature. Uh, you, you, you find oceans, right, of, of great thinking from philosophers to neuroscientists, biologists, you name it. And uh, uh, we thought that the, well, one thing that would be helpful to do is to distill some of the commonalities across all of these ways in which we've looked at what gets a, a human being going, basically. And what we have concluded is that there are two basic needs that animate each and every one of us. They're very fundamental. One need is very intuitive, is the need for safety. We all really need to feel protected from harm. The other thing we really fundamentally need to fulfill is a desire to feel that we're worth something that we're not just one of billions of humans roaming around the earth, that our existence means something, matters to someone, that it has value, that it has value. So these two things, the need for safety, the need for self-esteem are always in action. So when you lead somebody, those are your two anchors. They will certainly, certainly be animated by those two needs. Now, the, the complication that you were mentioning earlier is that how they're satisfied, those need changes. Mm. And uh, it changes depending on the situation. And people won't necessarily confess to you. Or sometimes they don't even know themselves. They don't even realize really how they want 
to pursue those two fundamental needs. And there are some reliable regularities in what people uh, go for in pursuing those needs. We certainly like material resources, money, property, because uh, those, they can buy you safety. They can buy you a home in a neighborhood where you can walk your dog at night without fear. Uh, those are simple things, but they're very fundamental things. And there are more psychological resources that allow us to fulfill those two basic needs that have to do with a sense of competence and achievement, that you, you're doing something well, that you are succeeding, that you're improving, that you're learning. And when you give your, the people you lead a sense that they're becoming better at something, that they're growing in their professional prowess, this need for progress, for mastery, for becoming better and better at what you do. There's a need for feeling that you relate to others, for affiliation. If I feel that people care for me and I care for them, there's a kind of mutual caring. I feel my sense of safety because if people around me love me and have some level of affection for me, they will protect me. They try their best at least. And if they like me and love me, maybe it's because I'm worthy of love. Otherwise it wouldn't. So you feel also your sense of worth, your sense of value. Then you have, a desire for autonomy. And for leaders, this is so important, so fundamental. They will, people, you know, the people you lead will feel much better about the work they do for you, for the organization. If you give them a sense, they are in control of their own choices. And when you feel that you have control over your life, you feel better about yourself because you don't depend on others to decide for you. you, are, you you're worthy of your own decisions. And you feel safer because you can kind of decide what the best course of action. So the leader that gives you that autonomy of choice, of the decision-making flexibility will feed something fundamental as well. And then we have a need for feeling that we have some worthy from a moral standpoint, that we are good human beings. Mm. This changes a lot. Um, it's, a, it's a matter of maturation in many ways, but... When, when your employee feels that, that the work they do matters for something bigger than themselves, that there's some reason for doing the things that we do that benefits others, that um, feeds a need for morality that we all harbor. Sometimes we squash it and we bury it because we're so concerned with the more material needs of our lives that we kind of forget along the lines. But we do feel it. And so, you know, I always like... <laughs> Reminding everybody that uh, fulfilling people's need to feel like that they have a, a moral dimension to what they do mm -hmm. does not require pursuing the loftiest of goals and saving uh, humanity. It can be quite small, but still relevant to make us feel that what we do is not for nothing. It's not just for me to make money, it's just to, to pursue something important. So these are, these are uh, pretty reliable things that people seek. And then the question for, for a leader becomes, how do they play out with the people I'm leading right now? Yeah, yeah, indeed. And they're going to be different, right? They're gonna, there's going to be a lot of variety and it will change over time. But that's the skill that to observe. And you were absolutely right, Dave, that oftentimes the leader is left 
to their own devices to sort the stuff out because employees are not going to know if they can open up and really tell the leader what they really want. And even when they do say what, what they want, they may not really have sorted themselves out either. So yeah, they they yeah. might think they want something that they don't. It's not really fulfilling them uh, because they haven't done their own work. So it, it, is, it is a lot of work for the leader, but it's, it's doable. It can be done. And we have lots of examples in the book for, of people that were in a very difficult situation and sorted it out and did it and accomplished fantastic things not only for the benefit of the company, but also for the benefit of the employees, giving them a better way to do their work and better way to live because we spend so much time in our companies, our organizations, and, and the question of how to make that time meaningful. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that is something I have seen happen again and again where even when asked what's important to you, what do you value, even thinking through the lens of these six things, that the employee very well meaning and and quite honestly answers but doesn't really reflect and doesn't really um you know says something simple that a lot of people say like oh i'd like more money or i'd like more yeah. of a bonus or something like that which is an easy thing for all of us to say but doesn't really take the time to reflect and so part of this is observing what people say but there's another part here of watching behavior and going a lot deeper. And uh, by the way, side note, it's worth picking up the book just for the graphic on page 60, because the six things you recommended as an overview just now of like, how do people leverage the things that we all want? Safety and self-esteem are through those six things. And I think every leader should have that on their desk. Like if I like just <laughs> have an awareness, and I think the thing that's really is a real call to action for me, and you you and Julie write this in the book a lot that, you know, these six things change in different situations and with time and given context and age and all those things for all of us. Like, uh, so that's really important to keep in mind. But the key is like, okay, how do I actually figure that out if someone's not going to say it? And one of the points you make in the book is that to discover what people want, you need to earn trust. And you highlight two criteria that people tend to judge others on across culture in relation to trust, and the two are competence and warmth. How do those connect back to those, those basic needs of, of safety and self-esteem? Yes, uh, they connect very directly because competence has to do with whether I can trust your ability to deliver. That's what it is. Uh, it's a judgment. I observe you and I say, yep, Dave has it. And wh what is it that I mean by that? That I can rely on you to deliver whatever work, whatever accomplishment I need in that moment. And it connects back to safety and self-esteem because if I am surrounded by competent people who are able to deliver those resources, I will feel that I have access to the stuff that I require to feel safe and to feel accomplished, which is a, a piece of my self-esteem. So, the connection there is through this trust in ability, but it's not the only form of trust we need to feel safe and to feel supported. The other one is trust in intention. Hmm. Can I trust that you mean well, that you're not going to stab me in the back as soon as I turn around, that you mean what you say? So it's a different kind of reliance that you have the right intentions. And that obviously makes me feel safe if I can just. You know, if you have my back, as they say, 
And uh, it makes me feel potentially also more capable of feeling good about myself because you're somebody who means well towards me. So it's a form of affiliation. It's a form of relatedness on a more kind of emotional level. And so I feel surrounded by people who care. Those two things relate directly. But they also do another thing that's very important. And they solve the puzzle you, you presented earlier. What if they don't tell me? Yeah. what they want. You know, I, I want to lead well. I want to do a good job. I have all the best intentions and I'm also capable. Thank you very much. And yet these guys are making it so difficult for me to do good work for them. And so what do you do? And we tell a story in the, in the book that it's informative because it talks about a young manager who graduates from an MBA, gets a job as a strategic advisor to the call centers of the organization. Now, strategic advisor for all the business people who are listening is not a particularly good role. It may sound nice because there's a word strategic in it, so it makes you feel important, but it's a role that that oftentimes, and in this particular case, came with zero formal authority. So this poor guy had the, the, the joy of having to help the call centers do better, and they were not doing well without having any capacity to dictate the behavior of the call center agents or the manager of the call center. So you are influencing without authority. And then you realize that the only way you can do that is if you figure out what these guys need to do a better job because the performance of the call center was not at all satisfactory without having um, any capacity to change their compensation because that was fixed at the corporate level. They couldn't do anything there. So you're really reduced in what you you can do for them. And yet you have to find a way. Yeah. And so what I can tell you, you to the application of those principles of that diagram that you mentioned, uh, if you are at all knowledgeable about any uh, call center in your life, you know, you know, one thing already to, to begin the sense of safety, the sense of self-esteem are really floundering in a place like that. It's very hard to feel safe when you have callers yelling at you, and they often do. And nobody calls the call center to say, oh, you guys are fabulous. I, I wanted to call you to say that I love you. It's tough. And you know, self-esteem is also hard because you often cannot make them happy, the customers. And you're not paid very well. It's very tiring and kind of alienating work. So, you know, he knew that. He knew citizens were not being served. The question for him was, what do they need for me to, to rekindle those two fundamental things that, that we all need to, to, to do okay in our lives? And money was not possible. As I said, compensation was just not accessible yeah. to him. So he had to work with the other stuff. And when he comes, you know, he starts to visit uh, one of the centers and he wants to ask questions, just ask them, what do you need? I'll do my best. I, I, wanna, I really, this guy really wanted to help. It was not fake. It was not just for the sake of making more money for the company. He wanted to see the morale of these folks improve a little bit because they were miserable. So he starts to ask and it's, uh, as he described to us, pin drop silence the moment he stepped into the call center. And this is where the lack of trust comes into play because he was coming from corporate and the people coming from corporate 
most of the time came with bad news of one sort or another. Yep. And they were up there wearing, wearing their suits and such. And, and so how could you trust these people that come and just kind of keep, you know, want to change things and they have no regard for what you need? So nobody would answer his questions. Nobody would talk to him. And he, 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 that's when he came to, to me to ask, what do I do? What do I do with these people? And I didn't have uh, as, as much, you know, we teach the things we're bad at. <laughs> I, I wish I had brilliant ideas. Uh, he had to come up with them. Uh, himself, and this is what he did, and I am I'm, I'm going to describe it because it goes to show to any leader that no matter how little authority you have, no matter how distrustful the people you're trying to lead are, you can do it. You can sort out their needs and and do good work. So he did this. He started to work from the first of the call centers that was assigned to him, once one day a week. He would just show up. He stopped wearing suits. He was wearing casual uh, attire like everybody else in the call center. And he plopped himself on one of the desks on the, on the call center floor just to be there and kind of almost habituate everybody to his presence and um, kind of uh, slowly relax the atmosphere around him. And sure enough, it worked. Because after a couple of weeks, they, they still, still they see this guy showing up. And at first, there's a lot of suspicion. What is he doing? What does he want? And then, you know, he's working all by himself. And it, before too long, they said, well, you know, I'm going for coffee. Would you like me to bring you a cup? And, and he said, well, no, well how, do, how about I join you? I need a, a little bit of a stretch myself. And they start to slowly break down the ice right around this guy. Mm. And over time, he learns. He learns a few things that they needed to do their job better. There was a, a script that comes up, a script in, in, kind of in response to a customer call that was just badly written, badly designed, and was making it very difficult for them to, to satisfy the customer. And what he does, he leverages his network at corporate to get, to get the script changed overnight. And so what he does is deliver something of value that confirms, tells these people that not only is this guy competent, I can trust his intentions, that he means well, he really wants to help because he's delivering, but I can also trust his competence because he goes and activates his resources for us. And he does this over and over again to just make them feel better about their work. So a sense of achievement, a sense that they could in fact deliver something of value to the customers to feel better about their work, a sense of safety because customers yell much less at them if they're enabled in doing their work. And then he has a lot of um, really inspiring understanding of the needs of these people. So he, he understands that when you're a call center person, you don't love the work. You do it because you, you have to, to make a living. But he had learned by being there that most of them had interests and had hobbies or side businesses or second jobs that fulfilled them more. Maybe they had a little gardening uh, business. They, maybe they were really good at baking. Maybe they, had, they worked volunteer for animal rescue. And what he said, you know, let's say we have this cafeteria that shows the news on the TV screen all the time. How about we show a slideshow of some of the things you do outside of work that you are happy with, that they make you proud and, 
And at first, nobody wanted to do any of that. He had to really pull teeth. And then the first one does it, brings in some of the images of the good side of his life, the the, the side where he showed a version of himself that made, made him feel good. And at that point, the floodgates opened. All of these cost center agents started to bring in these aspects of the life that, that really allowed them to portray themselves as a person worthy of esteem because you did something good or something that, that you were particularly proficient at. All of these things were ways to address the trust problem where can I trust this dude from corporate to have the right intentions, number one, and to be able to deliver for us. Hmm. And he was super attentive to every little bit of information that he gathered by establishing this trust and delivered on it instantly and reliably. So everything that they said that they needed, out he went to make it happen as fast as possible, as, as proficiently as possible, to demonstrate that it was worthy of their trust and they opened up, and then it could do more of it. The bottom line is in the space of six months, the performance of the call center doubled. Wow. All the engagement measures, you know, the satisfaction, the, the, the feeling of belonging, all of those more touchy-feely uh, went up unbelievably. And he was so good at this that he was asked to reproduce the magic in all the other call centers of the company elsewhere. Huh. I'm so glad you shared this story. And when I think about that leader and what he did, it really maps to something you highlight in your research that social psychologists tell us are really important for interpersonal liking, which is, and the two words that that jump out at me are familiarity and similarity. Tell me about those two words. Why is the, Why are those so critical? They are so critical in establishing that uh, warmth and that trust we were talking about earlier, because the sense of warmth, the sense that you are benevolent toward me, that I like you as a person, uh, is fed by reliable things. And similarity and familiarity are the two most important. Uh, similarity feeds liking so that the interpersonal rapport, because we like people like ourselves in the sense that they validate who we are. I have uh, curly hair, pretty wild, pretty unruly uh, curly hair. And if I encounter somebody who also has curly hair, they will validate. I'm not the only one with this particular wild feature. Yeah. And we'll also understand each other because it is a whole experience to have to handle a mane of a curly hair. And so we <laughs> we can kind of converge of an understanding of what your life looks like and what my life looks like because they, we, we overlap in certain way. We have something shared and that is very reassuring and very validating to people. And so the biggest, most reliable, best documented law of interpersonal behavior is the attraction to the similar. And so this uh, new manager without formal authority uh, understood very quickly that showing up at the call centers wearing a, a business suit when nobody else was doing that was a problem. And he shed that very quickly. And then he did more than that. At these lunches, when they started to finally include him, they were still very tentative. They were still very suspicious. And he started to say, you know, 
convey to them the 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 day-to-day problems he was having. So like, I want he wanted to buy a, a little apartment, a little condo, and you know, he was saying, oh my God, in this city, it, it's so expensive. I don't even know where to look. These neighborhoods, I mean, I like this neighborhood, but it's really, I can't afford it. And so he was sharing some of the problems he was having that, of course, they had too. Yeah. So establishing a sense of similarity really lowered the barriers to interaction. And familiarity was the other thing that, that he leveraged really well. If you are a stranger, how am I supposed to trust you? I know nothing about you. I have no sense of how, you know, how you're going to behave because I have no knowledge. And familiarity is the key for us to relax and feel that we're facing something more certain. Uh, So, you know, there are wonderful examples of this, but uh, one of them is our preference for mirror images of our face compared to the actual face we have. So most of us, (laughs) if exposed to a photo of our face and the flipping, the mirror image of it, instinctively tend to like the mirror image more. Yeah, yeah. And so actually in Zoom that we've all been using, there's an option, right, to to, to the mirror image. Yes. <laughs> because it, it, it's a less jarring. Now, actually, after a couple of years of Zooming, <laughs> we've all become more familiar with, the, uh, with our actual face. Right, right. But, <laughs> but it's really a matter of familiarity. So it, it relaxes us because it's something that I understand, I can count on. It decreases uncertainty. And uncertainty is something that human beings really dislike. And we will go back to the sense of safety. Uh, uncertainty is dangerous. And that's why we tend to run away from it. And familiarity allows me to feel a little little safer in my environment. And so this guy showing up once a week and spending the day working at his laptop in the middle of the call center floor worked on establishing that sense of comfort. The similarity that he was not as different from the call center agents as they thought and the familiarity. He was no longer a stranger. He had become almost a fixture of the environment that they could relax with and open up to. The invitation I'm hearing from you, not only in this conversation, but in the book, is you know, when, when trying to discover what people want, yes, take the time to ask the questions, but also to go beyond that. And when you zero in on familiarity and similarity, I mean, it comes right back to that safety and self-esteem you were talking about. And it's not by any means the end of answering the question of what people want. But boy, what a great starting point that goes beyond just like taking what people said in the first conversation at face value and actually really approaching it like from a servant leadership standpoint and really watching and listening and taking the time to observe And then to utilize those cues and what you hear to then begin to answer that question of what do people really care about? That's exactly right. I'm going to put the six things, uh, the six resources in the notes, if that's okay with you, because I think that that's, tell me if I'm oversimplifying this, but if I really want to know what people want and I don't have a sense that I, as a leader, have really answered that question well, or maybe people have kind of told me what I want to hear. Starting off with just thinking about familiarity, similarity, taking actions that start to lean into that, and then listening through the lens of those six resources of like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm observing now as I've started to do some of this 
relationship building, if I start to think about it through the lens of autonomy and status and achievement of what I hear, that I'm probably going to find out a lot more about the, that question than I would of just what people say. That's exactly right. It's really a, it's almost like a map that you are, that allows you to reach your destination. And uh, those are things that you know that some of those will matter to the person in front of you in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But that is the work of leadership, isn't it? And that is really what the call is for all of us of to really understand that we're not always just getting what people say the first thing or what we see on the surface. It's to actually go through and do the details of this. Tatiana, incredible. I'm going to be mapping all of this out in the notes for everyone. The book, uh, great. I'm especially page 60 with the graphic. I mean, so valuable for all of us to be thinking of. One last question for you. Whenever I talk to experts, I'm always so curious, like what they're learning and discovering, because, you know, so much of this for all of us is learning and discovery. As you have been doing this work, as you and Julie wrote this book and have done the research, as you reflect on the last couple of years of doing that, what's one thing you've changed your mind on? Oh, but a beautiful question. As you as you gather when you read the book, we read a, a, a absurd amount because this book, a topic like this, covers so much ground, and we had to be really honoring all the work that many many great minds have done in this domain and try to bring it to people. But here is what was most revealing to me personally: we thought that we were writing this book primarily for people who have been excluded from power and have been frustrated by power and uh, maybe not understanding it and finally giving them access to it so that they could you know pursue their their aspirations and accomplish what they wanted and the more we wrote and we more we talked about it the more we realized we actually wrote this book for people who have some power people who lead and uh, have to learn that it's not only understanding the people you lead that allows you to use power well. It's understanding yourself that allows you to lead well. And that requires a lot of self-discovery, a lot of self-awareness. And I'm really, really hopeful that this book will help each and every one of the people who, who listen find the version of themselves that they would like to see the most understand what that is. It would be a joy for me to observe that. Tiziana Casharo is the author, the co-author of Power for All, How It Really Works and Why It's Everyone's Business. Tiziana, thank you so much for your work. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for this conversation and the lovely questions. I appreciate it. If this episode was helpful, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them's episode 370, Three Steps to Great Career Conversations with Russ Laraway. Many of us know the importance of learning about people, their career trajectories, their history, and where they're going next. And yet, we haven't really received a lot of training, most of us, if any, on actually how to structure that conversation and series of conversations. Russ has a wonderful model, Three Steps that he presents to us in episode 370 on exactly where to start. So we really do get even more insight on what matters most to people. I'd also recommend episode 551, How to Use Power Responsibly with Vanessa Bonds. 
Vanessa's book on having more influence than you think is uh, one of my favorite reads from last year in looking at how we as leaders often think about power from the standpoint of uh, certainly others and how others respond to it, but sometimes we fail to recognize how much influence we have ourselves. It's very hard to see when we're in a position of power or influence. Episode 551, a great insight for us on how we can transcend that gap just a bit. And then finally, curiosity, of course, so important to how we figure out what people want. In episode 561, we talked about how to reduce burnout with Jennifer Moss. In that recent conversation, Jennifer looked at, in her research, the power of curiosity and, yeah, how much that really affects our ability to be able to reduce burnout in our organizations. It's a struggle that so many leaders and organizations are facing right now, given everything going on in the world. Episode 561 is a starting point for you on how to utilize curiosity as an avenue to begin to address burnout inside your organization and, of course, with individuals. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. When you're there, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership. Free membership has a number of benefits. One of them is the weekly leadership guide that comes to you each week with details from me on a link to our episode notes, details on the guests, some of the key points mentioned the related episodes that I just mentioned that comes to you each week in that weekly guide. And also, I am constantly on the lookout for what's going on in media, other publications, other articles and videos and podcast episodes from others that I think will really support you in your ongoing leadership development. Uh, so many of us lean in on looking at lots of different sources that will help inform good work and good practice in leadership as I do regularly. And I'm sharing those with you each week in the weekly leadership guide. It's one of the many benefits of free membership. In addition, I'm also databasing all of those and have been for years in my own library inside the free membership. You can get access to everything, not only the guide itself, but that database, that library, so that you can look up anything that's relevant for you and be able to find the articles that I've surfaced over the years and resources that I think will be most helpful to you. All of that at coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership. It'll take just a few seconds and you'll have access to everything inside there, all of the benefits, uh, including a whole bunch more that I haven't mentioned here. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Amishi Ja to the show. She is going to be teaching us through the research on how to pay attention better. A great compliment to this conversation. Join me for that chat with Amishi next week. Have a great week and see you next Monday.